In case you've forgotten, since it's been a month, uh, we are in Colossians chapter 3. And uh, let me sort of summarize a little bit. Um, of course, Colossians is essentially about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, it reveals that in uh, many ways, particularly that he is the supreme and sufficient one to create. He is the sufficient redeemer. Uh, he is the one who is sufficient for not just our salvation uh, seen in terms of our justification, but also in terms of our sanctification. He is sufficient to sanctify us. And that's kind of where we are in that section on sanctification. Uh, we kind of paused uh, in the stuff that the Puritans would call the mortification of sin, how to put evil things, the, the sin to death. Um, we've been looking at what's called the vice lists, and uh, there's one thing that's there that is not found in the vice lists, and we're going to hit that today. And then uh, next week we start with the vivification, as the Puritans would say, the bringing to life of righteousness. So that's kind of where we are. And uh, not being in the pulpit for a month, I forgot my Bible and I forgot my glasses. So <laughs> now I'm ready. That explains my departure. Okay, picking up in verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, purity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed ask that you would be gracious to us this morning, that you would send your spirit so that as we uh, explore these things, we are able to ask the question, perhaps, how do I still participate in these things? What must I throw off? What must I get rid of? Free us from the defensiveness that so easily arises in our hearts as that inner lawyer rises to the surface in our defense. Have mercy on us and help us to understand what it is you are doing in this great redemption through Christ, your Son, the all-sufficient Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, like some of you, anyway, when 42 came out, I had to go. It's about baseball. But also, it's about this text. And part of what I was doing was cultural and social research. I didn't grow up in the South in the 1940s. I've seen movies and 
to portray this. I've read books that talk about it, and I thought, you know, this would be a good thing for me to go and to see. Not quite my children yet. There's much that goes on there. And for those of you who aren't familiar with 42, that is the number that Jackie Robinson wore. It is the number in baseball that has been permanently retired. Unfortunately, there was one player who was still wearing that number at the time and who is still wearing it now, and we will not mention the name of that Yankee closer. Um, (laughs) When he retires at the end of this year, no one else is going to be wearing that number. And they only wear it on one day, and that is Jackie Robinson Day, when they remember what he did. And what he did was, of course, break the color barrier. At that point in time, there was no one in baseball who was black. There was something that had emerged over time. If you go back far enough in the history of baseball, uh, blacks and whites had played together. But at some point, it had changed. Not only was baseball segregated, but much of America was segregated. There was one telling scene at the, near the beginning of the movie when he's been invited to go to the Dodger spring training and he brings his wife and his wife grew up in California and she had no concept of the Jim Crow laws. And they're at an airport, I believe, in Georgia for the final flight that goes to Vero Beach and, uh, or to Daytona Beach, rather. And she sees the sign. Women. Whites. Only. And she was incensed. And she ignored the sign. And as a result of that, the very offended ticketing woman decided they're not getting on that flight. Bump them so they could not get to their destination in an act of uh, retaliation for breaking the barriers. That was just the many the acts of retaliation that would take place for Jackie Robinson in the next few years as he was subject to death threats and numerous uh, acts, words of slander, accusation, and just vile speech. A lot has happened since then. Since then, we've seen Rosa Parks. We've seen Martin Luther King. Uh, We've seen um, the Jim Crow laws obliterated although some states just kind of hung on to them for a while, even though they didn't enforce them. Now they finally, recently, got rid of them. I used to grow up watching the news and seeing what happened with the the busing situation in Boston. As desegregation took place, and it got ugly. Things are much better but they're not as they should be. There are still divides that happen within our country and also within the church. The church is not immune to these things. Some have called uh, Sunday morning worship as the most segregated hour. There's probably more people of color and other different ethnic backgrounds uh, in your place of work than there are in your place of worship, and that really ought not to be. And Christ, uh, Paul is sort of addressing this similar situation in the life of the Colossian church. The big idea this morning is that Christ unites people of every kind, and we have to start with the unfortunate sad news that as sinners, we hate those who are not like us. We struggle with this thing 
with people who are not like us. Paul, as I mentioned earlier, was addressing the sins of the Colossian church that needed to be put to death, that they needed to get rid of, like old, dirty clothes. And one of the things that he says essentially here that needs to be rid of is divisions, that there were divisions that were erupting in the church that were breaking the peace. He does not say this explicitly. I believe it is said implicitly by what he goes on to say next. Now, it is important for us to recognize that these divisions within the church were not like the divisions within the, the Corinthian church. In Corinth, they were theological divisions, largely. Here, they are not theological at all. And so this is not about people, you know, dividing over the issue of baptism. Do we baptize babies or only believers? It is not a, a discussion about, you know, whether or not the... the uh, Certain gifts are operating today or not. This is not a continuationist versus cessationist kind of division. This is not a division over whether or not the the five points of Calvinism are an accurate understanding of predestination or if the Arminian view is the accurate understanding of these things. It is not about any of those theological matters. It is about what Paul says. There is neither Greek nor Jew circumcised or un- and un- uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. The divisions that were erupting in the Colossian church, just as in the Galatian church, had to do with ethnic, racial, cultural, and socioeconomic barriers. That's what they were fighting about. The Greeks didn't like the Jews. And there were ethnic realities, there were religious realities that were at play in all of that. But not only that, there's sort of this idea of the barbarians and the Scythians. And, you know, if you're a normal, ordinary barbarian, those Scythians are really bad. You see, the Scythians had this reputation for being the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. And it might be all right if you're a barbarian, as long as you're not a Scythian. Okay? Don't want to be one of them guys. Okay? Slave free. There was socioeconomic uh, aspects to some of these divisions that were taking place in the church in Colossae, and that is very similar to what we have today. We still have some, in some places, ethnic barriers taking place. We also have socioeconomic barriers. In fact, I'm, I'm actually convinced that a lot of what we talk about in terms of race is more really aspects of socioeconomic background, that we kind of have merged these kinds of things and confused them to a degree. So it makes the conversation a little bit harder at times. Some of them are cultural in many ways. For instance, what uh, I often read, and I, also, I recognize this is a truth, is, you know, there's no one way white people think. At least I don't think there is. <laughs> I could be wrong. I'm white. We often don't really have that, that good self-reflection. But the, what I do recognize when they talk about the individualism that has captured European people, shall we say, because of the Enlightenment, because of that great shift in how people think that, that white people tend to be more individualistic than people of other ethnic backgrounds. But that's, that's not a matter of our DNA. It's a matter of where we grew up. 
It's a matter of our culture. And some cultures seem to think in terms of more of the group, more of the extended family, and more of the tribe, and that's more important than the individual. And so that's, that's not a genetic, ethnic thing. It's a cultural thing. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Racism, or classism, or all the other isms, is first an individual issue, but it's also can be a second, a sorry, structural issue. It's easier to change the individual sins that are at work, and it's more difficult to change the structural sins that are at work. In the PCA paper on racism, they defined it this way. Uh, you have it, that racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over another, saying this race is better than that race. You can substitute classism. One class is better than another class. One culture is intrinsically better than another culture. And then you start to see the divides that were taking place, not only in Colossae, but also happened in America, in the church, in America as well. John Frame notes, he says that, I believe that sin is basically individual because it is personal, but sinful individuals contaminate the institutions they inhabit And those institutions make the effects of sin even worse. And so what happens, what he's saying is, is that if you have a bunch of like-minded sinners together, what you get is things like the Jim Crow laws. It goes beyond the individual and personal sin and now begins to include societal and structural sin. So it's no longer... I don't like people who don't look like me. Now it's, they can't even be where I am. We've institutionalized the barriers that a person has in their hearts. So racist people create racist structures, and that is the exact situation that Jackie Robinson walked into in baseball. And it's not just America. This is a people problem. If you're like Justin and myself, you watch martial arts movies. Okay, and if you watch enough Chinese martial arts movies, what you will find is that those barriers exist within Asian people's cultures, Asian cultures. Some, a couple of the uh, Bruce Lee movies, for instance, take place during the Japanese occupation of China. And there was a sign in one of them where he's not able to go into a park because it says on the sign, no dogs and no Chinese. They were in China. But the Japanese wanted the park to themselves. And so they created a barrier because of their sin. What, what drives this? I can think of a few things. This is not an exhaustive list, but one of the the things is ignorance. Is that there's some people who have misconceptions of other races, other classes, other cultures, because they don't have any experience with them, and so they operate on the basis of ignorance. That's not it, though. That's not all of it. There's also fear. 
Because people tend to fear those who are different. People who threaten their security. I was reading the, uh, the book Reconciliation Blues, and uh, the author Edward Gilbraith mentions a number of experiences of older African Americans who were in predominantly white universities on the day when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And what these men and women saw horrified them because they saw their own classmates rejoicing that a man had been assassinated. But they were rejoicing because of their fear in terms of what he represented with the change in America. Their fear, as Yoda would say, had turned to hatred. And they had moved, so to speak, to the dark side. Not only is it ignorance and fear, but there's also pride, which is noticed there in the PCA position paper. People tend to think that their class, their race, their culture is superior to others. As I said, this is not a white-black sort of thing. Look at the genocide in Rwanda, for instance. Maybe go watch Hotel Rwanda. The Hutu and the Tutsi did not get along. In fact, if you study what's happened in the heart of Africa for the last 30, 40 years, that hatred is what marks it. The Great African War is largely about that problem. And you, if you watch the movie, what you hear, and this is going to be common in a lot of places, is that the official guy on the radio is calling them cockroaches, bugs, worthless. That's the language that they were using to try to, out of their pride, they're putting the other on the, on the level of bugs. So then, it, you know, you just exterminate bugs, don't you? And that's exactly what they tried to do in the Rwandan genocide. Get rid of the bugs. Not only that, but we, there's also the problem of fitting in. Last one I'm going to mention. That some prejudices are learned from family or friends. There's this one scene in the movie 42, and you know, of course, not sure how... Much how fictionalized this is, but I think it captures it perfectly. Uh, they have they're gone to play in Cincinnati, and that was the uh, nearby the home of of uh, Pee Wee Reese, one of the star players of the team. And so they go to the crowd, and there's a father and a son, and they're wondering how well Pee Wee Reese is going to play that day, if they're going to see their hero, their local hero, do well in the game. And so the father and son, they look normal, they look ordinary, until Jackie Robinson steps on to the field. And the father changes. And he starts hurling out racial epithets. And it is just visibly on his face, the anger and the hatred he feels for that man who dared walk on the field. And there's the son. Confused. Not sure what in the world is going on. And he's looking around and he's seeing everyone doing the same thing. And so he starts to say the same things. To fit in, he learned how to hate other people who were different from him. Largely, I believe, if you wrap all of this up, I think it's our sinful insecurity. We're afraid that we don't matter. 
and it lies dormant within the human heart until these circumstances arise, and then it expresses itself in this classism and this this, uh, racism and culturalism. And the church has often been caught up in this, and this includes Reformed churches. It was the Reformed church in South America that started apartheid. There were many, many Puritans, including some people that we treasure, uh, treasure, like Jonathan Edwards, who had slaves. I do not say that to, to dismiss them and to somehow discredit them, but to say that they were sinners too. And it was not, as some people think, the doctrines of Reformed theology that manifested themselves in these types of sins, but it is precisely the doctrine of Reformed theology that I think sets us free from these kinds of sins. They had cultural blind spots, and before we are too harsh on them, I want to remind us that we have our own. Recognize the sin that they committed, but don't make it sound like they weren't Christians, (laughs) because we too have our blind spots. And so prejudice of all kinds divides the church sinfully. Here's some good news. Okay? Is that Jesus saves all sinners the same way. Okay? Now remember, keep that in the context of this whole book. We recognize that not, not all sinners are saved. Okay? This is not universalism. But all who are saved are saved the same way. The world offers what I believe are insufficient solutions to the very real problems of prejudice and racism but I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient to deal with these problems. It is the only thing that is sufficient, and therefore it is supreme, or ought to be supreme in our hearts for this very reason. The gospel is part of God's redemptive plan precisely to deal with those issues. We find Genesis chapter 10, the table of families, the nations that are going to emerge And yet, in chapter 12, we see that initially God isolates one man, one family, one tribe, one nation. But what he says there in Genesis 12 is that through him, the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so it's not initially just for Abraham and his family, but it's going to extend back to all of those nations in Genesis 10. And we see this also manifesting itself in uh, Revelation. I keep wanting to say Romans. Revelation 5, when they're worshiping the Lamb of God who has ransomed men from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every ethnic background, class that you could imagine. He's ransomed these people for God to make them a kingdom of priests. That was always in God's mind. It was always the plan. And we see that running through the whole of Scriptures until it explodes before the throne of God in Revelation 5. We need to keep that in mind. Let's revisit for a moment how Paul describes this work of redemption to the Colossians that we've already seen. First, in chapter 1, verse 20, he talks about how Jesus made peace by the blood of His cross. This is just like what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, which Marty read for us this morning. Okay, And there's both a, a vertical component. We must be made right with God. Our enmity with God must be dealt with. His wrath must be dealt with. 
but there's also the enmity, the hatred that goes on the horizontal level, which is what Paul talks particularly about the second half of chapter 2 in Ephesians and, and deals with here. There's this personal thing. That God is taking the two and making one new man. He's making one new temple. One new kingdom. One new nation that belongs to him. All of those groups of people are being brought into one by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we say that his blood, for instance, is shed for Greek and Jew. It is shed for circumcised and uncircumcised, for barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. We could expand it to say black and white, rich or poor, Republicans and Democrats. Not so sure about those libertarians. No, for them too. It's the Green Party I'm really worried about. No, but everybody, okay? It's not like rich people need a special extra something to save them over the poor people. It's not like the Republicans need a little extra salvation, some kind of work that they got to do that the Democrats don't have to do. It is Christ and his shed blood equally for people of those different designations. Not only that, but in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that you have been filled in him. And so we see that Jesus fills all who have come to saving faith. He fills all who come to saving faith regardless of their ethnic background, their socioeconomic class, their race, the status of their checking account. They all have the fullness of Christ. Rich Christians don't have more or less of Jesus than poor ones do. Okay. Chapter 2, verse 12. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. And so all who have saving faith have been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. They died with Christ on the cross. They were raised with Christ on that third day. They have experienced all of this with him. And not only that, if they have partaken of that, all of their trespasses have been forgiven. Even racism, classism, ethnocentrism, all those kinds of isms. The blood of Christ is sufficient to remove them. This is why John Piper can say, no color, no ethnicity, no intelligence, no skill, no human wealth or power can add anything to the self-sufficient, all-effective sacrifice of Christ. Which everyone, every sinner needs. And so there is only one way of salvation for Jew and Gentile. One way of salvation for circumcised and uncircumcised. One way of salvation for barbarian and Scythian. One for slave and free. One for Republican and Democrat, Libertarian and Green Party. One for rich and poor. One for Southerners and Northerners. One with, for curly-haired people and one for straight-haired people. 
I'm with blue-eyed people. I'm with hazel-eyed people. Brown-eyed people. Do you understand? Sometimes we don't live like we do. And so we are all equally sinners in need of Christ and all equally by faith receive His benefits. So let's get to the third part of this. The now what? Joined to Jesus, we love those who are not like us. Something has to radically change. Okay? In other words, our common union with Christ should have some practical implications in the present. In other words, what we talked about a little bit last week <clears throat> um, with Seth, he was out of First Corinthians, uh, sorry, Second Corinthians five. That idea that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We do not look at people and measure them up based upon uh, earthly sorts of things. Their color of their skin, the way they dress, the way they talk, the bumper stickers on their car. Okay, I love Yankee fans. Not all of them, but some of them. The ones who love Jesus, I love. Okay. In other words, it's similar to what Paul says here in Colossians. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. And these sorts of divisions among God's people are earthly and need to be put to death. They need to be cast away because we are united in Christ. As Paul says, Christ is all and in all. We are to recognize others as also, because of their faith in Christ, as united to Christ, as filled with Christ. And because they're united to Christ, they're also united to us. Whether you like it or you don't. Just like a family. Doesn't matter whether you like your brother or sister. They're your brother or sister. And so you better start loving them. That's what's supposed to start to unfold. Paul deals with this as well in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, which is another one of those things that Paul talks about here in Colossians 3. We've put on the new man. We've put on Christ. All of us are in the same boat in a good way. There is neither, he says, therefore... Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so Paul lays the hammer down there in Galatians 3. All of these things that we think mean so much mean diddly. You can be glad to be Italian, unless you're not Italian. Okay. But you know what? That can't be my primary identity. My primary identity has to be Christ. Not America, not half of Europe, which actually I belong to. Um, (laughs) My ancestors are from everywhere over there. Okay? My primary identity has to be in Christ. Not white, not suburban, not middle class American, not male. Christ. 
Our identity in Christ trumps all the other identities we have. Doesn't mean I stop being male. Doesn't mean I stop being white. Doesn't mean I stop living in America. But it means that I don't allow those things to be how I view the world and how I evaluate other people. In other words, our common acceptance with God, justification, should change how we treat each other because God's accepted them. Why can't I? So individually, on a personal level, this means that we have to move beyond the boundaries in terms of painful friendship. Okay? When I was uh, in counseling, uh, the movie Amistad came out. And I decided to go, and I invited one of my classmates to go with me, and she came. I'm not sure exactly why I even did that. For me, watching that movie was painful. There are disturbing scenes of what violence that took place in that film. But for her, it was just, I can't even imagine what it was like, because she's African-American. And when we got out of the movie, she didn't want to talk to me. She was that disturbed by what she had seen. And she, it's one thing to kind of know about it and hear the stories about it, maybe read about it in a book, but then to see it visually displayed. It went beyond me being called a WAP, a guinea, and a greasy hair Italian. Okay? I didn't like getting called any of those things, but what those people experienced was far worse. And it's only in the context of friendship that we begin to understand that. It begins to become more real. Okay? That's why Tom Skinner, an African-American Christian, says that racial reconciliation is whites and blacks holding on to each other, not letting go and doing surgery on each other. How's that for fun? It's going to be painful sometimes because we're going to have to face some of the ways in which maybe we've bought into some lies or the ways in which, as the, as the confession of sin talked about, we've been reticent, we've been slow, we haven't been swift. These friendships are going to be vital. The theoretical understanding and acceptance of these things is just that. It's theoretical. We have to begin to live it out. What's telling to me is that um, some people talk all about education. Got to educate, got to educate, got to educate. And, and you know, um, there's nothing wrong with education, obviously. But it's insufficient. Necessary, insufficient. What strikes me is, is most of the movies that I have seen that have dealt with these issues, movies like um, Remember the Titans, The Hurricane, hmm, Denzel Washington. He has a lot of these themes. Hmm. Um, American History X, the person shifts not because of what they read in a book, but who they meet in a person and realize we may be different in some ways, but we're both human. So getting to actually know people who are different is important. And being, being able to accept them, even though you may disagree on things, that whole idea of our justification, okay? We can't be threatened by the different perspectives that people have. 
precisely because we recognize that we're secure in Christ. Okay, we have to fight that insecurity that, that rises up in the fear. Okay? And so as we live in these friendships, we want to try and understand life from their perspective as best we can. I don't know if any of you remember the name John Howard Griffin. Anybody remember that name? Nobody. Okay, John Howard Griffin was a journalist. He was concerned with racial equality, and he wanted to understand the plight of the African Americans in the South of the 1950s. So what John Howard Griffin did is he went undercover, shaved his head, took medication to darken his skin, put on some screens, uh, creams to kind of cover up anything that was uh, you know, still a little light, and traveled the South, looking as if he was black. It was bad, but it wasn't as bad as when he released his book, Black Like Me. That's when the death threats came. That's when he had to leave the country for a while because people felt he had betrayed his race. He walked a mile in their shoes and helped a lot of white people understand kind of what it was like. And so part of what needs to take place is understanding what it's like. And that means that accommodation has to take place on both sides of all of these issues, all of these divides, so that we can enjoy fellowship as a part of our union with Christ, as we ought. It's not, come on my terms, but let's meet in the middle. But letting people in is just the first step. I think ultimately what has to happen is that we must share power with them, whoever they are. That's one of the struggles with our denomination right now. We're okay that they're here, but we're not yet, I don't think, okay with sharing power with Hispanics, with African Americans, with Asians. I don't see that yet. And that's going to be the telling difference of whether or not the work of reconciliation is is taking place is if we're allowing them to take positions of power or if we're going to keep them to our white middle-class suburban selves. It's an important part of this. Allowing people who have gifts to rise to fulfill God's call on them. That's that's part of the institutional level, the structural level. And we must remain, we must become committed to addressing any of the remaining structural sin. That was really what bugged Branch Rickey. Jackie Robinson doesn't happen and do anything if it wasn't for Branch Rickey. As Branch Rickey said, I'm a Methodist. Jackie Robinson's a Methodist. God's a Methodist. This has to work. God's not a Methodist, but... um, When he's asked throughout the film why he did what he did, he starts off with these answers about, I want to win. I want to beat the Yankees because winning means money. 
So it sounds like he's motivated by money, and he probably was to a degree. But there's this telling scene near, near the end of the movie. It's this really sort of... It's a private moment between him and Jackie. When It has been a horrible day for Jackie. And Jackie says, why did you do this? In a sense, why did you do this to me? Okay? Because it's not Branch Rickey who's enduring it all. It's Jackie Robinson who's enduring it all. And he talks about how he saw injustice. Years ago in his college team, where he was able to play with people from different backgrounds, and he saw that, base, that baseball, Major League Baseball, was unjust. I love what he said. He said, Jackie, you've given me back my love for baseball. He acted in part, not all, but in part because of his faith in Christ. Motivated him to do this knowing the consequences of what was going to unfold because he knew the wrath of Hades was coming. But both their faith, both of them were men of faith, and it was their faith that enabled them to withstand what they experienced. But it also was the motivating force to begin that process. When we begin to address structural issues, I think one thing that was often forgotten is that how it is done must be to preserve the dignity of others. Doing this can get confusing and conflicted at times. But there are many policies that our government sometimes recommends that I think often undermine the dignity of people. As if they can't do it without the government's help. As opposed to just removing the obstacles. That's justice. Remove the obstacles. We must address the structural sin, but we must also do it in a way that guards the dignity of the people involved. So our country is still largely conflicted about race, about class. Just listen to any election rhetoric. Class is huge. Culture. And this confliction, uh, sorry, this conflict uh, really just expresses itself in the church, which doesn't often reflect the community around it. This conflictedness is rooted in our radical, meaning from the root, insecurity and fear, which manifest themselves as hatred and prejudice. The gospel has the only sufficient solution to the guilt, to the bitterness. To the conflict. And so Jesus joins sinners of every tribe, nation, tongue, and language to himself. And so we're meant to increasingly live out this eschatological, otherwise Revelation 5, reality. Are we willing to be misunderstood so that we can understand? Are we willing to be rejected so that we can embrace? In other words, are we to begin to love others as Jesus has loved us? Because Jesus didn't look like any of you. 
Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to hear this. It's hard for me to say it. Even though we understand some of this with our head, it's still hard for our hearts to hear this. Father, I long for this church to reflect the heavenly reality that we see in Revelation 5. But I can't create that. Only you can do that. But I ask that your spirit would be at work so that we might see the ways in which we um, foster, maintain, encourage uh, prejudice in its various forms. That we might turn from those things, that we might put them to death and get rid of them. But we only see them by the work of your Spirit because they are hidden sins in our hearts. And so do your work by word and spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.